0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a Minnesota D-Day story to remember. The pitfalls of teens and screens ahead of the summer break, and the new Big Ten commissioner, Kevin Warren. But first... Things state lawmakers didn't finish. That's this week's topic as MN's Bill Werner looks back on 2019 at the state capitol. At least so far. Scott, it makes absolutely no difference whether it's a regular session. The motion prevails, and the Senate is adjourned.
1: Or in this year's case, the special session that followed right on its heels.
2: The motion prevails. The House stands adjourned sine die.
1: There are always things that when that final gavel falls are left undone. There's always gnashing of legislative teeth when things fall through the cracks at the end of sessions. But more so this year, with both sides of the aisle pointing fingers when a deal on an insulin assistance program fell apart in the closing hours of the special session, either due to confusion or political shenanigans, depending on whom you talk to. I'm afraid that if I don't vote for it, then I'm going to get a postcard in the mail saying, I hope more people die. And to those who would do that, I know about having a son die, and it's not that much fun. And none of
3: us take this lightly. It is outrageous. Um that people who need insulin can't get it and we can't make it more affordable. Uh, it's not acceptable to tell them to go to the emergency room to get it.
1: Governor Tim Walz says executive action is among options he's researching to implement an insulin assistance program in Minnesota. Some are suggesting he call a special legislative session sometime around Labor Day. The governor says he's
3: willing to listen, but... I'm a little bit unsure of what would get done in that time when uh, we were asking continuously. <laughs>
1: Another thing left undone this year was a bonding bill. Something Republicans agreed to in the state budget deal because they no way wanted a gas tax increase, but it ended up not happening in the special legislative session. There's now talk at the state capitol about a second special session in 2019 to pass a bonding bill. Minneapolis Democrat Frank Hornstein chairs the House Transportation Committee.
4: Bonding is extremely important. This is funds that are uh, used to improve the state's infrastructure, university buildings, We have uh, favorable interest rates now, so uh, I think there is urgency to getting something done, and I would certainly support uh, doing a a bonding bill sooner rather than later.
1: The arguments on the other side will be that next year, even numbered year, is a bonding year. That's the way it's been. Uh, Sometimes we do a small one in the off years, but but the, the full-size one is left for the even-numbered years.
4: That's true, but um, usually that doesn't come till the end of the session, unfortunately. So if we can get something done sooner than later, then we wouldn't have to wait till next May. There are urgent issues uh, that need to be addressed in terms of our infrastructure, and that's what the uh, bonding bill does.
1: So what does Republican Dave Senjam from Rochester, who chairs the Senate Capital Investment Committee, think about a special session at some point this year to pass a bonding bill?
5: Well, we uh, from our side, uh, I don't think i would be terribly interested in that. We're, you know, the session's over. We are moving on. We're planning our fall tours. Uh, planning on putting together the, the 2020 bonding bill uh, with respect to going back and uh, trying to resurrect the bill to to, to get it negotiated uh, within uh, the, the summer. You know, the summer months would be. I'll tell you what, it'd be very difficult, I think, to. Uh, To get, again, the people together, uh, to get the bill together, not doing the tours to make make it exceedingly difficult. I think to put a a bill together that's meritorious. So I I I personally would not be interested in that at all. Uh, I've moved on. We had a chance to negotiate a bill uh, in the last week of session. Uh, We weren't able to do that. And uh, at this point in time, uh, I think it's just best to wait to 2020.
1: And what about that gas tax increase that Governor Walls and fellow Democrats were pushing so hard for during the regular session and the special legislative session? That didn't get done either, and it likely won't, unless Democrats come out of the 2020 election not only keeping control of the Minnesota House of Representatives, but also grabbing a majority in the Minnesota Senate. But House Transportation Committee Chair Hornstein says there's another way to get a gas tax increase. The key is the business
4: community. Uh, when we passed new revenue last time in 2008, it was the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce that stepped up. Unfortunately, they have not stepped up. And um, I think when the, when the business community understands... Uh, that they have to be active players here if we're going to have a first-rate transportation system. I think you're going to start to see things uh, move.
1: We asked Bentley Graves, the Minnesota Chamber's director of transportation policy, about that.
2: Yes, I would just point out there are some some important differences between 2008 and, and now. Uh, for one, in 2008, you know we haven't we hadn't had a revenue increase for transportation in, in 20 years. On top of that, uh, you know the the five to 10 years leading up to 2008. From the business community's perspective, anyway, uh, you know, the state made a lot of progress um, uh, kind of reforming and, and, and right-sizing the um, the business tax burden on businesses in Minnesota.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is that we really need to, that lawmakers really need to look at the some of these other business taxes and maybe get Minnesota in a more competitive position on those before any sort of a gas tax increase might might be palatable is that reasonable to say?
2: Yeah I mean I think that's generally what we've heard from our members uh, as we've had this conversation about you know uh, increasing investment infrastructure the last several years. So at least so far on a
1: gas tax increase and a bonding bill
5: She's come
0: Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. Thank you for that report, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns in a minute.
6: You wanted to see me?
3: Yes, please. Have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but... I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you.
6: You're, you're serious?
3: Absolutely. Find your next great
1: employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs.
6: I won't let you down.
1: I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and
0: gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As much of the world paused this week to remember the 75th anniversary of D-Day, a pair of Minnesota researchers share the story of one small-town Minnesota soldier who stands as an example of heroism and sacrifice. Reporter J.W. Cox has more.
7: Scott, the story of Private First Class Virgil Tangborn became personal for Maddie Martin Correa and Ron Hustavit in 2012 when they were researching Minnesota soldiers as part of a program related to National History Day. Tangborn, who grew up in Neri, Minnesota, was drafted into the Army in 1942 at just 24 years old. Hustavit and Martin Correa then pick up the story for us as Tangborn was sent to Europe
2: to be a part of the coming invasion, he was he was in the the military band as preparations were coming in the months before D-Day. The army disbanded the band, but they figured they could be trained to be medics. So he did the training that they had in the in the crash course that they gave him, and he qualified and was a medic on D-Day itself. He was on board a ship waiting to go onto Utah Beach.
6: So on D-Day plus. To when they finally landed on Utah Beach, they went to some of the smaller towns in the area. There's one small town in France that they came upon where there were you know, local women and children who had been under German occupation. And Virgil was instrumental in kind of leading this effort to also make sure that the local women and children were getting medical care. He was crossing a land bridge through an area that was expected to have been safe when they were hit by this airstrike. And he was one of the only... He was brave enough to run towards munitions trucks that were on fire to try to help, and it was helping other people who were injured when he was hit by a piece of shrapnel that ultimately ended his life.
7: For his valor and bravery, Tangborn received the Silver Star and Purple Heart. Decades later, he also received another unique honor from one of the towns his unit, the 90th Infantry, helped to liberate. They wanted to
2: make sure that they had somebody who was a medic. They used his likeness. They used his story to help tell the tale. It's interesting, the town was not liberated until after Virgil passed away, but because his story was very typical of your average small town person, his likeness was selected to be part of that memorial.
7: The monument is one of the few that features the actual likeness of specific soldiers. For Martin Correa, that had a profound impact.
6: I remember at 17 years old just being so rattled to my core, struck with the utmost love and grief and gratitude for Virgil. To see him in person, especially with the expression that that statue has, which is one of pain and persistence, it gives you this heaviness inside of you where, you know, this isn't just a nameless, faceless soldier. This is someone who could have been my friend, someone who I deeply respect. And to see his face in that expression and see him posed in a helping position the way he would have looked throughout that entire experience is indescribable.
7: Hustavitz says Tangborn's overall story is an important
2: reminder. These guys were not all brought back. A lot of them went across overseas and, and that's where they stayed. Every one of them has a story. A lot of times people know or they, they've heard about it, but a lot of those stories are fades. While people are around, while you still have connections to people who remember, I would encourage people, and I always encourage students, and they're always grateful when they go and do this for the conversations that they have with grandparents and great-grandparents. Every little bit of information you get helps you dig further on your own to try to, to fill in the pieces.
7: Martin Correa got to have those conversations with other Minnesota World War II vets.
6: To have the men who were there in person still living Be able to tell you about trying to balance, you know, that Minnesota nice upbringing, that you know, moral fortitude, that moral compass that is so instilled into the culture of what it is to be Minnesotan, and carry that with you when you go into battle. You know, there is this common thread of integrity, this common thread of this is who I am as a person, this is my upbringing, these are the strong roots that I have and who I am, and this is how I can use my foundation to make sure that I conduct myself with that strength, with that persistence to do what is right and what could help people even when there are things that I never wanted to see taking place.
7: Both Hustavit and Martin Correa agreed the stories of D-Day, World War II, and all veterans have significance to our lives
2: today and to our future. Telling their stories and reading their stories is the only way to to keep people remembering The cost of freedom, the price of war, you know, why we need to try to resolve things peacefully so we don't have such a drastic situation ever again.
6: We're living in a time where there are potential opportunities where in their lives, individuals will be asked to make the tough decisions that those individuals were forced to make. Reading their stories, learning from their mistakes is one of the most powerful ways that we can teach, you know, current generations. To rely on doing the right thing against all odds
7: martin correa hopes the story of virgil can be the nudge that other veterans need to feel comfortable talking about their service
6: a big paradigm that i found to be especially concerning was this trend for soldiers from minnesota who are famous for being humble and not wanting to brag equating that with not wanting to tell their story or not feeling like it was their place to have their stories told and I spent a lot of time working with these veterans to communicate with them the importance of telling their story, to contributing to the historical record and convincing them that yes, your story, one people wanna hear, it's one people wanna read. And I would strongly encourage if there are any veterans out there who are struggling with telling their story, be it from World War II or from other wars, I would want them to reach out to us through the website that we've set up, and we're happy to connect them with resources and with information about how to go about telling their story.
7: More information on PFC Tangborn's story at rememberingvirgil.weebly.com. Scott, back to you.
0: Thank you for that report, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. With summer break upon us, parents are trying to find ways to keep their kids active and off their screens. It can be challenging, especially in light of a new study showing a third of teens sleep with their smartphones in their beds and 62% of parents keep their phones within reach of their bed. I recently spoke with Health Partner Sleep Behavioral Psychologist Dr. James Davig about the impact it's having on kids and adults and why it's important to try and reverse the trend.
3: I think it has uh, pretty negative impacts, I mean starting with kids. In particular, we know um, young adolescents on up to um, late teens require about 8.5 to 10 hours of sleep a night to be their most healthy and function well. And any amount of activity that cuts into that is, is 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 only bad for them. And so, smartphones are very difficult to avoid. And so, if, if if a notification goes off, or if they want to play their Fortnite, or or they're on YouTube, or things like that, that diminishes how much chance they get for sleep because laying in bed doesn't count as sleep, and it sets a really bad precedent and habit for lifelong sleep problems that. Once they're established when you're young, it's awfully hard to break those habits. So that that sleep loss, you know, interestingly, 2012 or so is when rates for teenage depression um, skyrocketed. That's about the same time that smartphones became relatively common. So, you know, it has negative effects on depression It increases risks for um, overweight, diabetes, um, academic problems. So at a time in their life when they need to be getting as much sleep as they can for brain development, they're getting less sleep. And, and similar, I would say, for adults is too much electronics time in the bed, especially if you're having sleep problems, can, can push your sleep schedule later where you're, now it's harder to fall asleep as early as you would like, but because we have jobs and school, we don't get to sleep any later, so we end up, we end up going into sleep deprivation.
0: And of course, Dr. Now, we're heading into that uh, that part of the season when most students are going to be on their summer break. And I'm anticipating that a lot of parents are in the same boat as I am, which is trying to figure out ways to keep them occupied without having them on their screens. How important is that to do, and, and, and how difficult might it be to do when they're sort of in the habit of being on them?
3: Right. Well, I, I would say, you know, as, as being a parent, you've got the most amount, at least theoretically, of control over your child's uh, phone use, so I, I think setting up firm rules, including you know no for sure no phones, and it's not just phones, it's iPads, tablets, laptops. You know those things aren't to be allowed um, in the bedroom at night, and parents can keep them in their own room, give them to the kids when the morning comes. They can have rules where the phone is always charged in the kitchen, um, and and you can even take steps to, um, I think of it as like a data curfew, where where you can set limits on when that phone is able to access the Wi-Fi or access data. So there are a lot of things that parents or guardians can can directly manage right now. Um, and it's important, too, I would say for parents to look at how they're modeling that for their kids. So it's not just what the kids use, but the kids see you in the bed with the iPad, you know, you're sending mixed messages.
0: And we talked a little bit about the impact that it has on the development and on some of the negative impacts that too much smartphone time can have on teens and kids. But uh, what do we know about the impact that those would have on parents? Is it is it as detrimental as it is for the kids and the teens?
3: Um, I would say so. I mean, we don't have as much of a need for, for brain development once you get past early to mid-20s. But definitely, um, if it decreases our opportunity for sleep, it increases our own risk for health problems. Um, It can increase risk for accidental injuries. Sleep is as basic as oxygen. And when you get less of any of those things than you need, um, something will suffer. And so too much screen time for adults is, is also very bad.
0: Thank you to my guest, Health Partners Sleep Behavioral Psychologist Dr. James Davig. Minnesota Matters returns after this. We asked kids what
1: it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say.
6: A father is always present. I mean,
0: what fa- what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look
6: forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like
0: a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4-DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Big Ten Conference Commissioner Jim Delaney will retire at the start of 2020 and his replacement was named this week. The man charged with taking his place will inherit one of the most powerful positions in all of sports, not just college athletics. And that new man has worked in Minnesota for the past 15 years. MNN M&M sports director Mike Grimm has the story.
1: 55-year-old Kevin Warren has been with the Minnesota Vikings since 2005 and has been the chief operating officer there since 2015. He worked with the St. Louis Rams and the Detroit Lions prior to that and has also been a sports agent and a sports attorney. Warren will become the first African-American to be a commissioner of a Power 5 conference. He says he owes a lot to his late parents.
8: I wish they could be here because today is a day that they told me about that would come. They said days like today will come. They may not come when you're ready. They may not come when you want them to come, but they will come when the time is right. And they told me that if you work hard, you leave every situation better than it was when you arrived, you keep your word You do the best job you possibly can. You attach yourself with good people. You get a good education. You be a student athlete. That you will get an opportunity to have days like today. And for that, mom and dad, I just wanna thank you for reminding me to always take the long road, to not take shortcuts. And you were right. And I'll tell you that I'm glad this opportunity took as long as it did for me to stand before you today. Standing before you today has not been easy. It probably started 44 years ago as an 11 year old kid. As an 11 year old kid, I was happy go lucky. I love life. I love my family. I love sports. I love to play. I love to eat. I love to watch TV. I'd love to act like I brushed my teeth when I didn't. I love to not make up my bed until that one summer day when I got on my bike to go to the local school to have fun with friends and I was run over by a car. And as I laid on that ground and I heard all the things that the paramedics were saying about that I might not make it, and then traveling in an ambulance and then the fun began for them to put me in traction for weeks and months and I thought the fun was ready to end then until the doctor told me that we were going to need to put you in a body cast and to spend many, many, many days and nights wondering if I'd ever walk again. They told me I would never play sports again if I would ever have an opportunity to be a normal kid. Well, during my exit meeting with the doctor, and I've learned over life, that sometimes people who may not even believe in you and who don't know your internal constitution and what you stand for, the doctor said some words to me that I wish I could contact him today and thank him, because he told me your chance of walking not good. Your chance of sports, really not good. And so I asked the question as an 11-year-old boy, scared, frightened, had never been through that much pain in my life. The pain would be so searing that I could feel it in my teeth. I would ask him, even though you don't believe that I can get back to where I was, what would give me the best chance? And he told me, you need to swim. So I asked my parents, would they put a pool in our backyard so I could swim? My mom and dad looked at me and said, Kevin, we would love to. We don't have the financial resources to do that. And So I came up with the novel ideal, and that's probably when I figured out. I'd probably be a good lawyer one day. I told my parents, I said, didn't I get a $30,000 settlement from the accident? They said, yes. I said, I want to pay for the pool in our backyard. So I spent $11,000 to build a pool in our backyard. And I swam in the morning. I swam after school. I swam at night. Morrison and I, he was the best Mar- Marco Polo player I've ever been around. And I finally figured out later is that he would move, we, he would move the, the towel uh, in the goggles to the side so he could see. So that's how he would catch me. I figured that out. But we swam and played. And worked out so much in that pool that six years after my accident, I was able to lace up some red Nike shoes and walk on the court at the palestra in Philadelphia as a Division One NCAA student-athlete. And what I learned from that journey, that in life, most of the times when you accomplish great things, you've got to build your own pool you got to be willing to pay for it. you got to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to dedicate yourselves to being great. Sometimes it's lonely, lonely sometimes it's complicated. But it's great. And so as I stand here today as a new leader of this conference, thinking about what Jim Delaney accomplished, thinking about what this staff in here has accomplished, or 5.7 million alumni around the world, 9,600 student-athletes. I promise you that I'm going to do everything possibly to make sure we create an environment for our student-athletes here to empower them, to embrace them, to educate them, to make them the people, and to give them the experiences that they need not only while they're here playing in the Big Ten, but when they graduate. That's Big Ten Commissioner-to-be Kevin Warren of the Minnesota
0: Vikings on Minnesota Matters. Scott, back to you. Thank you for that, Mike. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.